The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. Hey guys, this is Writing Class Radio. Thanks for tuning in. On this podcast, you'll hear true personal stories from the students in our class and a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, I mean getting to the truth. And by art, I mean the craft of writing. On today's episode, we start by talking about novel writing, because we go both ways. What are you wearing? It is very hot in Berkeley right now, so I'm wearing shorts. What color are they? Blue jeans. How short are they? (laughs) Um, Almost down to my knees. Is that all you're wearing? (laughs) No. I have a t-shirt on. I have some clogs on. Clogs? Very 70s. They're back. (laughs) That's Grant Faulkner talking to us about his outfit. Grant is the executive director of National Novel Writing Month. In his book, Pep Talks for Writers, 52 Insights and Actions to Boost Your Creative Mojo, Faulkner talks about the importance of what you wear, making time to write, and knowing thyself. You'll hear more in our interview with Grant later in this episode. You'll also hear students' stories in response to one of his writing tips. I got inspired by National Novel Writing Month, which people in the know call NaNoWriMo. Every November, thousands of people race to finish a novel in 30 days. I decided to join the race. But I knew I'd need a head start. NaNoWriMo suggests you write 50,000 words. That's a lot. So I began writing in June. I'm 8,927 words in. So I read Grant's book, and what I noticed from his 52 insights is that there are so many similarities in writing fiction and writing nonfiction. Grant lists important tips for writers, such as, you are what you wear. That's funny. Because when I write, I'm usually in my pajamas. Some days I manage to put on shorts and a t-shirt. Hey, this is Andrea. According to Grant, what Allison and I wear might be a problem because what he meant by you are what you wear is what you wear changes the way you approach your writing. Oh, Jesus. It sounds like those spectators who show up to a professional tennis match wearing tennis clothes. Yeah. Like I should have worn a softball uniform when I wrote that story called Softball Lesbian because I think it would have helped me get in the mood. Aren't you going to ask me about the bun in my hair? Oh, thank God. I've been looking at it all day. What are you doing with that thing in your head? You never wear a bun. I'm trying to be Virginia Woolf. Grant thinks what you wear affects your writing, like the famous white coat experiment, where people who dressed in a doctor's coat scored higher on tests than those not wearing coats. But we took his writing tip and turned it into a writing prompt, a tool to get to know ourselves better. Later in the episode, you'll hear some of the stories students wrote in response to You Are What You Wear. We're starting with Grant Faulkner. Alice and I called him at his house in Berkeley, California. So we know that you you started a journal called 100 Word Stories. Will you tell us your story in 100 words? 
gosh, right now? Yeah, I'm going I'm to count. I'm keeping count. Go. Okay. Is this the actual interview? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't know if you were going to do it. So my, my actual story, I'm a fiction writer. I'm executive director of NaNoWriMo. I'm co-founder of 100 Word Story. Uh, I'm a parent. I uh, am a son. I love to write. I love to try to inspire people to embrace their creativity. I like to help people break down the barriers that are um, obstacles for their creativity. I think when people embrace their creativity, it makes the world a better place. I think it makes them better people. And I've essentially always been a writer. I remember asking for this cool little leather-bound diary that had a lock on it for my seventh birthday. And my mom got me this cool antique roll-top desk for kids, and, and that's one of my prized possessions. And I remember writing my first story at it uh, when I was, I don't know, I must have been five or six, very young. So I obviously know a little bit about NaNoWriMo. I know it's an online um, community, but I would like you to speak about that. You know, people think of it as an event that happens every November, but it's really about the community. Um, we are structured around just encouraging people to be creative, to banish their inner editor and write that rough draft, and just, just to experience that, that creative flourish. You know, every year about 300,000 or 350,000 people sign up for NaNoWriMo, and during the month of November especially, uh, we have like literally a million threads or a million comments in our forum section about every single writing topic under the sun. Um, and it's just so, you feel like the whole world is, is doing this crazy task with you, and it's really inspiring and galvanizing. So we, we believe in breaking down that mythology of the solitary writer. I have signed up, and I am failing, and I'll tell you why. Your number five tip is make your creativity into routine. So I try to get up early, and when I do, the entire house seems to also get up early. I this morning was going to write for two hours before we came here and my daughter had a toothache. So we went to the, it's like, it doesn't matter what it is. I cannot find my routine. What do you say to me? Well, I think you should probably parent less. (laughs) I knew I liked you. I I have the same problem, uh, same challenge. And I often, you know, I often refer to my kids. They're, they're like this invasive species. They have a sense when you you sit down to write and they immediately enter the room. In order to hit your 50,000 words, you've got to say no to things, meaning social media or binge-watching Netflix or, or maybe you have to skip the PTA meeting that month. You know, Maybe you have to take care of yourself. I think one great aspect of writing and parenting is role modeling that for your children, that you've made creativity a priority so that they can see that it's really important in life. I always say you have to go on a time hunt during November in order to be successful. And I might have to ask for help for a month during November. I might have to ask my kids to walk the dog more often or do the dishes more often. I learn to write in smaller fragments of time, you know, maybe 15 minutes at lunch. When I pulled up at work, I would write for five minutes in the car before going in. Toni Morrison wrote her first novel. She was a single mom. And after putting her kids to bed, I think she had two or three kids, she would write for 15 minutes before going to bed herself. And that's how she wrote her first novel. Grant just came out with a new book, Pep Talks for Writers, 52 Insights and Actions to Boost Your Creative Mojo. One of his insights is persist through rejection. I asked him if he had to persist through rejection to get this book published. (laughs) 
I think every writer, on many different levels, it's unfortunately just part of the experience. Um, whether it's rejection from publishers, uh, whether it's rejection from friends and family, or whether it's your own personal rejection, most writers exist in a state of self-doubt. And that, that goes for really uh, well-published writers as well. It's, it's just every day is a new day, and you've got to overcome a lot of obstacles in order to get the words down. Two more tips that I just love and want to talk about. Um, tip number 35, be deluded, be grand. That one makes me laugh. I think if you, if you tell yourself you're not going to write something great, you won't write something great. So for me, I, I, I do want to write a great novel. And, uh, you know, that might be deluded, but who cares? I think delusions, <laughs> I mean, delusions have a bad connotation, right? Yeah, I think now tip number 35, be deluded, is my favorite tip of yours. I totally agree with it. I think that any creator, any author, has to think they're going to write the most important thing ever. But then they also have to have, like, so much insecurity that once they write that first draft, they have to go back to it and edit it and edit it and edit it and make it great, right? So I feel like we have to be deluded and also so insecure, like, or else we won't keep editing. I think you're absolutely right, and that I do think you have to you know, approach your work with that editor's eye. And you've got to find that, that balance that works for you. Talk to me about tip number 46, know thyself. The more authentic you can be, um, especially to yourself, which is a challenge. You know, I think it's a huge challenge. It's not an easy endeavor, but I think it's something we have to do every day just as people, but also as writers. Um, and I think the more authentic you are, the more brave you'll be on the page. And so, yeah, I think, I think it requires a constant kind of self-evaluation of how you're acting and how you're thinking. And are you doing this for other people? Are you doing it for status? Are you doing it for money? Or are you, or are you serving your story and yourself? I also understood it as um, creating yourself through the writing. So learning who you are while writing, which is exactly what a memoirist has to do over and over and over again. And that's what you're saying novelists do it too. Talk to us briefly about what you mean by you are what you wear. I feel like if people dress as the author they want to be, they will, you know, write in that direction and write, write better, I think. So if you are what you wear, are you also what your name is, Grant Faulkner? <laughs> uh, I haven't really thought about that, but I suppose it's a little bit of baggage. What was one of your biggest challenges in writing this book? And well, I guess it's a two-part question. And how did you know it was done? <laughs> yeah. Uh, biggest challenges, I think it goes back to the earlier questions about uh, living a hectic life um, and raising kids and working hard at my day job and then doing 100-word story on the side. And so, you know, it was just tough within the time. You know, when you sign a contract for a book, they give you a, a due date, which is motivating and wonderful. I'm a big believer in deadlines, obviously, but it was also challenging uh, how did I know it was done? Well, one, the deadline. <laughs> so is there anything else you want to tell our listeners and then it's a wrap? You know, I think um, the running theme through uh, the book is really, you know, helping people to sit down and write. And I think one thing that, that always um, I find disappointing, I guess, is how reluctant people can be to claim the moniker of I am a writer. A lot of people think writing is something that other people do, that they're not a creative type. They think that to say, I am a writer, you have to be published. And you're a writer because you write. That's my definition. 
And I think when you embrace that I am a writer, if you call yourself a, that you're a writer, if you're, you're proud of it, I actually do think that influences your writing on the page. I think you'll be bolder, you'll take more risks, you'll be daring, you'll be more vulnerable. And that's, the, you know, you can read all the craft books in the world about how to write dialogue or how to write suspense or how to plot. But I think the best books are actually written when the author uh, really does a deep dive into their own vulnerability. We read and we love to read because of that heart-to-heart connection. Thank you for, for sitting down and talking to us. We really enjoyed this. We've been looking forward to it. Thank you for making the time. That was so much fun talking to Faulkner. I'm inspired now. No, seriously, I'm going to do it. I have 8,927 words. So how many more do I need, do you think? 8,927. Where's your calculator? It's a lot. I'm not doing the math. It's a lot, but you can do it. Okay, yeah. Um, Right after I drive carpool, we reduce the next episode, teach my prison guys, write my story for class, go to the gym, take pictures of my clients, drive to my daughter's gymnastics, make dinner, clean the kitchen, take out the trash, and and get the kids to bed. You doubt me? Of course I can do that. To find out more about how to get through the first draft of your novel or memoir, visit NaNoWriMo.org. Thank you, Grant Faulkner, for being on our show. You can find all of Grant's books at booksandbooks.com or on Amazon. We're back with the stories that our students wrote given the prompt, You Are What You Wear. Our first story is by student Aaron Curtis, who you may have heard in episode 32 read his story, Lost Child. I took care to pack for our trip to Paris like I was going into battle. I'd been to New York City many times for trade shows, and while I put more effort than I normally do day to day, I never really tried to go next level and be fashionable. In Miami, even though it's superficial as hell, it's my home turf. I felt like bumming to work in shorts and a t-shirt every day because I could was fine. I'd step it up a little for New York, but wearing a smoking jacket over a book-themed t-shirt isn't high fashion. I have a friend who was a fashion designer. One day while we went out to lunch, she eviscerated one of the Coral Gables businessmen for his ill-fitting suit. Jesus, I said, I'd hate to hear what you'd say about me. Oh, I wouldn't, she said. He's trying. You've opted out. Somewhere between that comment and my trip to Paris, I decided I would make myself unrecognizable. I scoured thrift stores looking for anything in my size. I found pants that were too tight, shirts where the sleeves didn't fit. Of course, sleeves can be rolled up, and the only reason the pants didn't fit is because they were fashionable, skinny pants, the kind I refused to wear. But the last thing I wanted was to be recognized as an American. I went to the salon for a haircut for the second time in 20 years, and the first time since my wedding. It was 40 degrees in Paris. I layered up, packing four different blazers so I'd have something for every mood. The first time I came out of the bedroom, ready to hit the metro, Becky looked me up and down and said, Damn, I should take you to Paris more often. To my shock, people didn't point and laugh. They didn't know I was pretending to be fancy. They accepted me as a sharp-dressed man. I didn't feel like an imposter in my new old clothes. I didn't feel uncomfortable showing the lines of my body. I felt good. Since I've gotten back, getting my hair cut by a professional and wearing clothes that don't make me look like I'm going to play beach volleyball has been a joy. 
Something I've hated has become something I love to do. It feels like self-care. It feels like a piece of how well my life has been going lately. My wife's students had artwork displayed at the Hillfigure store on South Beach, and I bought a slim-fit, deep navy shirt that cost what I'd pay for several outfits at a thrift store. But a portion went to Autism Speaks, so I spent it. On the plus side, the sleeves reached to my wrist, never an easy task when you're six foot three and have decidedly simian arms. On the minus side, I couldn't imagine an occasion when I'd wear it. Then my fashion designer friend visited Miami again. It ended so abruptly, and that's what happens with a prompt. So this narrator persistence himself as someone who doesn't care, and then he gives us all this evidence that he does care. He tried really hard to get the perfect I don't care outfit. He cares. The narrator drew me in immediately because he's so honest. So I want to, I want to see this narrator admit he didn't try because he knew he couldn't compete. But then when he starts getting compliments, we do see a change in him. I think that in stories also and in life, I think I do that. I, I sort of opt out because I think, oh my God, there's no way I can go to a bar and try to like get lucky next to the 32-year-old perfect boobs, perfect body chick. So I just don't go. You quit. You quit before you try. You pretend you don't care. Right. That's what this narrator is doing. But I want him to tell us that. I want him to be self-conscious enough to know that that's what he's doing. And I think he's getting there. Yeah. I mean, with these prompts, it, they often, you know, we often cannot get to the point where we realize we're sort of stuck in the middle still. And we're, we haven't progressed all the way to the point where we're like, oh, my God, this is why I'm feeling this way or this is why I'm writing this now. So what you just heard is an unfinished story that was started in class. Next is Virginia Laura, our co-producer, who's also a student in the class. You're what you wear. I recently cleaned out my closet, got rid of items I never wore, and rediscovered other ones I hadn't seen in months. If someone saw my closet today, what truth might they understand about me? I apparently love flowers. I've never thought of myself as a girly person. If you ask me, do you like flowers? I'd probably answer with some indifference. Well, I don't hate them. One time, not long ago, I was shopping with my best friend Ashley, and she picked out a few blouses and dresses and said, these are so you, you should try them on. I was surprised because she was holding up two really cute and stylish outfits in beautiful colors. Oh, I love these, I said. Of course you do, Virginia, she said, then laughed, like it was so obvious and there was no mystery to me. You love flowered patterns. It's your thing, right? She floored me right there. Really? I went home that night and looked at my closet as if for the first time. Yes, blouses, sundresses, sweaters, guilty as charged. Panties, bras. I took a closer look at my pajamas and robe. Their gray and white striped pattern was embroidered with tiny flower designs that until then I had probably been drawn to unconsciously. Journal covers, even the perfumes on my shelf. Yes, there's leather, vanilla, musk, but there's always a flower mixed in there. Even gift wrapping paper stored under my bed. I wouldn't describe myself as a tomboy growing up, 
but I left the princess stage rather quickly. Never cared for the color pink. As a teenager, was always conscious of not dressing too girly because of all the negative associations that patriarchy has instilled in me. But as I found out that Saturday afternoon at TJ Maxx, in spite of it all, I'm a flower girl. God, Ashley really knows me. What else, I wondered, could she tell about me that I couldn't? It's endearing only because it's Ashley, but the idea that other people catch on to something about myself before I do is kind of terrifying. Empty room, possessions and boxes. This is a perfect example of know thyself, Grant Faulkner's tip number 46. Sometimes it takes our friends to help us get there. This next story is by student Liz Marquardt. My husband Bill walked into our bathroom last Saturday afternoon and said, what is wrong with you? There were six pairs of shoes strewn around the floor, dresses hanging on every hook in the room. I said, you don't understand. I need to look nice tonight. My dance class friends always look fantastic, and I don't want to be the frumpy one. You know I suck at being a girl. But usually you don't care about that, so why are you freaking out now, he said. I stared at him. Six feet tall, perfectly pressed Brooks Brothers button-down shirt, matching shorts and loafers, his thick, perfectly combed brown hair. I resented the fashion that just comes naturally to him while I struggle with getting dressed every day. Bill, the birthday girl, is modeling bathing suits after having two kids. She was a former Miss Peru. You have no idea what kind of pressure this puts on me. I continued to take shoes and dresses on and off. You'll be fine, he said, and walked out of the bedroom back to the safety of his office. I googled dresses in various colors to see what shoes would match. I was trying to find a look, classy and sexy, but not slutty. I'm almost 50 years old, so I don't want to dress too young. I tried a short black dress on, but it looked a little too short. Then I tried on a less short black dress. That one made my butt look squishy. I put on Spanx, but the bottom of the Spanx stuck out. I tried a third black dress, something I'd wear to work but it looked to accountant, which I am, and not at all a Latin pop concert where I was going. Next, I pulled out a light purple one-strap cocktail dress, but the strapless bra was showing, and my 36 double Ds can't go braless. When I managed to tuck the bra in, I realized the dress was too tight. I couldn't exhale like I could seven years ago when I'd worn it last. From there, I tried on my red sausage-style dress. A girlfriend talked me into buying it for a holiday party four years ago. It still has never been worn. Every time I try it on, it makes me look like Jessica Rabbit. All my parts hang over the edges just a little too much. I then went to the blue-green dress that I wore to my holiday office party this year. It still looked okay, but my underwear line showed. So I changed to a thong, but the waistband showed through. So I went back to the Spanx. I was an hour and a half into this exercise, and I was quickly sweating away the shower I had just taken. 
I spent the next half hour trying on various shoes that would match the dress according to my internet research. I tried high heels for a fancy look, then switched to a lower heel. If we were going to be dancing at the Carlos Vives concert, I would sacrifice sexy for comfort. I settled on mid-sized black wedges. With outfit done, I dried my hair and put on makeup and jewelry. Once we got to the restaurant, the hostess took a picture of us. My friends had the perfect outfits and all looked stunning. I am an average-sized woman with an athletic figure. My friends are really tiny. Two of them are size zeros, and the other is a size two and tall. When I saw the picture, I gasped. Oh my God, I'm Shrek next to these lovelies. What was I thinking wearing this bright blue dress next to their sleek black designer dresses? I look humongous. I know this is going to end up on social media, and it's not going to be good. Why didn't I ask one of my friends to dress me? Why did I think I could dress myself this time when I always have an outfit fail? I know I don't possess the jeans for fashion, shopping, or matching my shoes with my purse. I should have called one of my friends who knows everything about women's fashion. They even know how to guide me in bra and underwear selection. I had the resources. I always think I don't care, but then when it happens, I do care. Why did God give me the jeans to be good in math and know every player the New York Giants drafted this year Yet forget to give me a fashion gene. Could I learn to be better at it? Would I want to learn? This is something I really don't understand about myself. I totally related to this story because I always feel like everyone except me got the memo on what to wear. Oh my God, we learned so much about Liz Marquardt. She tells us up front she sucks at being a girl, and then we see her in scene in her closet sucking at being a girl. That's a great example of show and tell, something I talk about a lot in class. She tries on Spanx, a thong, the sausage dress. Okay, anything called the sausage dress is never getting worn. Next, we have a story written by Mike Gonzalez. Earlier this year, I began teaching a memoir writing class inside the Dade Correctional Institution as a facilitator for the Exchange for Change program. Exchange for Change is an organization that brings writing classes into prison and prisoner stories into the world. Mike is one of the students in my class. As a homeless 12-year-old, my clothes never betrayed that fact. My little brother and I would go through great lengths not to look like homeless kids who, on any given night, slept on the sands of Miami Beach, on rooftops, in stairwells of buildings, or in trees we could climb. Occasionally, we'd break into empty hotel rooms and sleep in them. A soft bed, however, wasn't the main reason for risking arrest for breaking and entering. Our main objective was to shower and hand wash the clothes we carried around with us in backpacks. Clothes we'd steal from anywhere. From high-end stores in South Beach and Aventura Mall. From mom-and-pop stores in Little Havana. We even stole clothes from those small, self-serve laundromats available to guests at mid-priced hotels. And if you decided to leave your Nike Air Force Ones unattended as you swam deeper into the ocean or fell asleep sunbathing, those Air Force Ones became mine. Clean and fresh-looking clothes couldn't fill our perpetually growling bellies. They couldn't provide a steady, warm place to sleep. 
But because our clothes didn't advertise our homelessness, we weren't immediately turned away when we would walk in unaccompanied to various hotel lobbies, running from the relentless summer heat. It seemed to us that our clothes helped the employees assume we were guests. Our clothes never betrayed our hopelessness, so we weren't shooed away, like flies hovering over a juicy steak, by the parents of rich kids on vacation whom we'd befriended on the beach. Our clothes told these folks that my little brother and me were worthy of being invited to lunch at Wolfie's or dinner at Kenny Rogers. Because our clothes didn't carry the stench of our wildness, the public bus drivers almost always believed our story of why we didn't have our fare and let us on the bus. Or maybe we were just fooling ourselves. Maybe these people really just felt sympathy for two kids who were always alone, but played along in order to avoid embarrassing us. Our clothes helped protect my little brother and me from prejudice that homeless people experience the world over. Today, the prison blues I am forced to wear are far from a shield against prejudice, but instead come with 100 years worth of negative stereotypes woven into the fabric in which I fight against daily. To the majority of society, my clothes say that I am dangerous, that I'm uneducated, even subhuman. I want you to know that these clothes are lying. As a homeless kid, my clothes said what I needed them to say for my survival. Now, getting people to not believe what these prison clothes say is equally important to my survival as a man. I am in prison, but prison is not me. I am not the sum total of my worst mistake. These three natural death sentences don't fit me, and no amount of tailoring can ever make this feel comfortable. I will continue pulling at the hem, continue unraveling the fabric with my pen. For I have outgrown these blue grave clothes, and I'm ready to walk out of this tomb. Dade Correctional did not allow me to bring a recorder, so Mike's story was read by our friend Matt Kundal. He is a radio consultant, voice actor, and also a huge fan of writing class radio. This narrator grabbed me with the very first sentence. I have a 12-year-old son now, and the thought of him homeless broke my heart. Each sentence was so descriptive and telling. We get exactly who this kid was and why he did what he did. We also get exactly who Mike is today and why his clothes have never truly represented him. I love that prompt, you are what you wear. It it totally worked to get to Grant's tip, tip number, who knows what number, know thyself. Yeah, I love that too. What grabbed me so much about each of these prompt responses is how the physical description of our clothes reveals so much about our emotional and internal lives. What do your clothes say about you? (laughs) Okay, listeners, let's hear it. Start writing. What do your clothes say about you? Thank you for listening. We've started a 20 plus two campaign to help keep this podcast going. If you love us, give $20 and get two people to subscribe. Our goal is 2,000 new listeners and $20,000 by the end of the year. We can do it with your help. Please help us reach our goal. If you have a business or a startup, let me help you tell that story. I'll come to your office and teach all your employees how to better articulate why they do what they do. Because stories sell. And also, these classes are so much fun. 
And Allison is also up for hire. She can help your kids write their college essays. We want your story on our show. If you are inspired, enter our contest. Send us your best 1,200 words. The prompt, secret pleasure. Deadline is February 14th, 2018. First and second place winners will get a copy of Pep Talks for Writers. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Allison Langer, and me, Andrea Askowitz. Theme music by Ari Herstand. Additional music by Emia, Blue Jay, Jason Sager, and Poddington Bear. You can find all our music on our website. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is sponsored by Gold Valley Consulting. Hire Christina Baldor to do all the administrative stuff that bogs you down. And thanks again to Matt Cundill from Matt Cundill Voiceovers for reading Mike's story. If you need a voice, male or female, for your radio project or podcast, he's online at mattcundillvoice.com. Matt doesn't actually do the women's voices, (laughs) but he has a woman on staff. There's more writing class on our website, Twitter, and Facebook. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Virginia Woolf. I'm trying to be Virginia Woolf. I'm conjuring up Virginia Woolf. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.